transmitting to you from Old Heart Radio. right you ugly bunch of motherfuckers i am your host i'm old heart aka jared aka this is an episode of coffee and contemplation i totally forgot to mention that all right it's perhaps uh your least favorite old heart radio podcast i mean it's a good bet it's a good chance it is uh it's a good chance it's actually your least favorite old heart uh least favorite podcast in general but we're not going to talk about that. That hurts my feelings. Uh, hope you're all doing well. You know, shit's real. Shit's raw. I think every day, you got to remind yourself of that kind of shit. <laughs> what the fuck? What the fuck? Keep your chins up, dirty fucks. In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been running, turning over in my mind ever since. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had. He didn't say any more, but we've always been unusually communicative in a reserved way, and I understand that he meant a great deal more than that. In consequence, I'm inclined to reserve all judgments, a habit that has opened up many curious natures to me and also made me the victim of not a few veteran bores. The abnormal mind is quick to detect and attach itself to this quality when it appears in a normal person, and so it came about that in college I was unjustly accused of being a politician because I was privy to the secret griefs of wild unknown men. Most of the confidences were unsought. Frequently, I was feigned sleep, preoccupation, or a hostile levity that I realized by some unmistakable sign that an intimate revelation was quivering on the horizon. For the intimate revelations of young men, or at least the terms in which they express them, are usually plagiaristic and marred by obvious suppressions. Reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope. I am still a little afraid of missing something if I forget that, as my father snobbishly suggested and I snobbishly repeat, a sense of the fundamental decencies is parceled unequally at birth. And after boasting this way of my tolerance, I come to the admission that it has a limit. Conduct may be founded on the hard rock or or the wet marshes, but after a certain point I don't care what it's founded on. When I came back from the East last autumn, I felt that I wanted the world to be in uniform and at a sort of moral attention forever. I wanted no more righteous excursions with privileged glimpses into the human heart. Only Gatsby, the man who gives his name to this book, was exempt from my reaction. Gatsby, who represented everything for which I had an unaffectioned scorn. If personality is an unbroken series of successful gestures, then there was something gorgeous about him. 
some heightened sensitivity to the promises of life, as if he were related to one of those intricate machines that registered earthquakes 10,000 miles away. This responsiveness had nothing to do with that flabby impressionability, which is dignified under the name of the creative temperament. It was an extraordinary gift for hope, a romantic readiness such as I have never found in any other person, and which is not likely I shall ever find again. No, Gatsby turned out alright at the end. It is what preyed on Gatsby, what foul dust floated in the wake of his dreams that temporarily closed out my interest in the abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men. My family had been prominent, well-to-do people in this middle western city for three generations. The Caraways are something of a clan, and we have a tradition that we're descended from the Dukes of Buchlech. But the actual founding, founder of my line was my father's, my grandfather's brother, who came here in 51, sent a substitute to the Civil War, and started the wholesale hardware business that my father carries on to this day. I never saw this great uncle, but I'm supposed to look like him. A special reference to the rather hard-boiled paint, hard-boiled painted painting that hangs in my father's office. I graduated from New Haven in 1915, just a quarter of a century after my father, and a little later I participated in a delayed tectonic migration known as the Great War. I enjoyed the counter-raid so thoroughly that I came back restless. Instead of being the warm center of the world, the Middle West was now, now seemed like the ragged edge of the universe, so I decided to go east and learn the bond business. Everybody I knew was in the bond business, so I suppose it could support one more single man. All my aunts and uncles talked it over as if they were choosing a prep school for me, and finally said, why, yes, with very grave, hesitant faces. Father agreed to finance me for a year, and after various delays, I came east, permanently, I thought, in the spring of 22. The practical thing was to find rooms in the, rooms in the city, but it was a warm season, and I had just left a country of wide lawns and friendly trees, so when a young man at the office suggested, shit, shout out, shout outs to anybody listening out there, you hot dogs are awesome, uh, shout outs to my friends and family, shout outs to, uh, my homies, Mojo Jojo, uh, Olivia, Jamie, and my girlfriend, Nadine, you guys are all fucking awesome, so when a young man at the office suggested that we take a house together in a commuting town, it sounded like a great idea. He found the house, a weather-beaten cardboard bungalow, at 80 a month, but at the last minute the firm ordered him to Washington, and I went out to the country alone. I had a dog, at least I had him, for a few days, until he ran away, and an old Dodge, and a Finnish woman, who made my bed, cooked breakfast, and muttered Finnish wisdom to herself over the electric stove. It was lonely for a day or so, until one morning, some man, more recently arrived than I, stopped me on the road. How do you get to the West, Egg, the West Egg Village? He asked helplessly. I told him, and as I walked on, I was lonely no longer. I was a guide, a pathfinder, an original settler. He had casually conferred on me the freedom of the neighborhood. And so with the, sun, the sunshine and the great bursts of leaves growing on the trees, just as things grow in fast movies, I had that familiar conviction that life was beginning over again with the summer. There is so much to read, for one thing, and so much fine health to be pulled down out of the young breath-giving air. 
I bought a dozen volumes on banking and credit and investment securities, and they stood on my shelf in red and gold like new money from the mint, promising to unfold the shiny secrets that only Midas and Morgan and, <laughs> and McKenna's knew. And I had the high intention of reading many other books besides. I was rather literary in college. One year I wrote a series of very solemn and obvious editorials for the Yale News. And now I was going to bring back all such things into my life and become again the most limited of all specialists, the well-rounded man. This isn't just an epigram. Life is much more successfully looked at from a single window, after all. It was a matter of chance that I should have rented a house in one of the strangest communities in North America. It was on the slender, righteous island with which extended, which extends itself due east to, of New York, and where there are, among other natural curiosities, two unusual formations of land. Twenty miles from the city, a pair of enormous eggs, identical in contour and separated only by a courtesy bay, just out into the most jut out into the most domesticated part of saltwater in the Western Hemisphere, the great wet barnyard of Long Island Sound. There are not perfect ovals, like the egg in the Columbus story. They are both crushed flat on the contact end, but their physical resemblance must be a source of perpetual confusion to the goals that fly overhead. To the wingless, a more arresting phenomenon is the dissimilarity in every particular act except shape and size. I lived at the West Egg, the well, less fashionable of the two. Though this is the most superficial tag to express the bazaar, and not a little sinister contrast between them. My house was at the very tip of the egg, only 50 yards from the sound, and squeezed between two huge places that rented for 12 or 15,000 a season. The one on my right was a colossal affair, by any standard. It was a factual imitation of some Hotel de Ville in Normandy, with a tower on one side spanking new under a thin beard of raw ivy and a marble swimming pool, and more than 40 acres of lawn and garden. It was Gadsby's mansion. Or rather, as I didn't know Mr. Gadsby, it was a mansion, inhabited by a gentleman of that name. My own house was an eyesore, but it was a small eyesore, and it had been overlooked so I had the view of, a, of water, a partial view of my neighbor's lawn, and the consoling proximity of millionaires, all for $80 a month. Across the Courtesy Bay, the white palaces of fashionable East Egg glittered among, along the water, and the history of the summer really begins on the evening I drove over there to have dinner with the Tom Buchanans. Daisy was my second cousin once removed, and I'd known Tom in college. And just after the war, I spent two days with them in Chicago. Her husband, among various physical accomplishments, had been one of the most powerful ends that ever played football at New Haven. A national figure, in a way, one of those men who reached such an acute, limited excellence at 21 that everything afterwards savors of anticlimax. His family were enormously wealthy. Even in college, his freedom with money was a matter for approach. But now he'd left Chicago and come east in a fashion that rather took your breath away. For instance, he brought down a string of polo ponies from Lake Forest. It was hard to re realize that a man in my own generation was wealthy enough to do that. Why then, why they came east, I don't know. They had spent a year in France for no particular reason and then drifted here and there unrestfully wherever people played polo and were rich together. 
This was a permanent move, said Daisy over the telephone, but I didn't believe it. I had no sight into Daisy's heart, but I felt that Tom would drift on forever, seeking a light a little wistfully for the dramatic turb for the dramatic turbulence of some irrecoverable football game. And so it happened that on a warm, windy evening, I drove over to East Egg to see two old friends whom I scarcely knew at all. Their house was even more elaborate than I expected. A cheerful red and, wine, red and white Georgian colonial mansion overlooking the bay. The lawn started at the beach and ran toward the front door for a quarter of a mile, jumping over sundials and brick walks and burning gardens. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is another episode of Coffee and Contemplation. I hope y'all are taking care, washing your paws, staying safe, all that pandemic shit. Go out there, as always, and use your brains for good. Every day is a great day to ripen up that coconut. Uh, if you didn't realize what this reading was from, it was The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Shame on you. If you did realize, good for you. Thanks for listening to Hot Dogs. Keep your stick on the ice. Oh yeah, and happy April Fool's Day.